Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that we can gather here today, this morning, in this place, in your presence, as day has broken. We thank you that your promise is that the Son of Righteousness shall arise on us with healing in his wings. So bless us this morning, this day, this week. Meet with us on the mountaintop. Strengthen us for when we walk from here down into the valley. This morning, speak, I pray. Be not frustrated by the limitations of fallen humanity, but speak all the same and bless us now for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Please join me in saying amen. My brother believed, my brother believed that he was the last one in the door. When he was baptized, he was convinced that Jesus' return was so close that he had made it to the baptistry just in time. That was the year in New Zealand where we are from that the Labour government was voted out of power. Prime Minister Bill Rowling, who was born, interestingly enough to me, the year my father was born and who died the year my father died, was replaced as Prime Minister of New Zealand by a human lightning rod named Rob Muldoon. That same year, Harold Wilson was Prime Minister of Great Britain. Pierre Trudeau was Prime Minister of Canada. Australia had two PMs that year because there was an election, Gough Whitlam and Malcolm Fraser. And in the United States, the president's middle name was Rudolph. Do you know who that was? That was Gerald Ford. When Gerald Ford was president, my brother believed he was the last one in the door and that Jesus was going to return any day now. And that was in 1975. A quart of milk in this country cost then 46 cents. A loaf of bread, 33. That was the year the Vietnam War ended. Arthur Ashe won Wimbledon that year. You could buy 10 first-class stamps for a dollar, and a gallon of gas cost 57 cents. It was 40 years ago. And my brother believed that he had given his heart to Jesus just in time to be ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ. But he was wrong, wasn't he, about the timing of all of this? What he didn't know is that Jesus wasn't going to return in 1975, but in 2015, after all, the Supreme Court has just made some game-changing decisions. That's surely a sign of the end, isn't it? And the Pope is coming to the United States in just a couple of months. That, that's it right there, isn't it? The Pope comes to the United States and Jesus comes to the United States just shortly thereafter. That's going to open the floodgates, surely. You know how the predictions go. Those among us who have the gift of prophecy see the return of Jesus in every current event. 
and every earthquake and every major disease outbreak such as Ebola and SARS and MERS. Every time there's a presidential election, the drums start beating. This is going to be the one. You hear it right after the election. There is proof emailed to you, proof that you cannot speak against. He's going to be the one. Soon they may be saying, she's going to be the one who will usher in the mark of the beast and earth's final events. I want to suggest something to you this morning, and it's something that you already know. Just like my brother didn't know when Jesus was coming back, we don't know either, other than to say Jesus is coming back soon. And I believe that's all right. Now, I'd like to take you with me in the Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Would you turn there, please? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I'll start reading because time is the enemy this morning. Paul wrote, But other times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write to you. Now, why was Paul writing these words? Why did he say, But other times and seasons, you have no need that I write to you? Because he had just got through writing one of the most sublime passages in all of the Word of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we pick it up in verse 15 where he wrote, Paul wrote, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent, shall not go before them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Then he wrote that wonderful P.S. Wherefore comfort one another with these words. Paul has just spoken with confidence about the return of Jesus. He has just said, hasn't he, that Jesus would come and that he would come in a certain way. It would be Jesus who comes back. He would come back literally, really him. He would come back with a shout, audibly, a trumpet blast. You would hear that if you were sleeping. He would come cataclysmically, he said. He didn't say that Jesus would come with fervent heat or that the earth and all of its works would be burned up. Peter wrote that later. But Paul essentially said the same thing. He said when Jesus comes back, graves would be open. The dead would rise, therefore mausoleums would be rent asunder. Certainly that would be so. Grave markers would collapse, and some of those things are impressive. I remember, I remember visiting uh, the burial place of Abraham Lincoln. And, and I marveled because you know that at one stage, grave robbers had tried to get Lincoln's body. And so whoever it was in charge at the time, uh, it looked as though they tried to make sure that Lincoln wouldn't come up in the resurrection because he's buried beneath concrete and steel and this and that. But even Lincoln, we hope and pray, he's going to come up from that grave in spite of man's inventions. And what a turmoil that is going to cause. Paul said the dead would rise from their dusty beds, an upheaval of a significant nature. Paul talked this up. If he had been preaching this, you would have expected his congregation, irrespective of their cultural background, to say amen and hallelujah. He spoke of the resurrection. And as he did, he spoke to the heart. You know he did because he spoke suggesting these words would offer comfort, comfort to the grieving. After this convention, I'm going to a little town, a place where I once pastored a most wonderful church. And I'm going to conduct a funeral service, at least participate in one. As sweet a lady as you would ever know, got up one Sabbath morning, walked from the bedroom to the living room, stood at the window and looked out, sat down in a comfortable chair and went to sleep. And to this day, she hasn't yet woken up. But she will 
And you know that this coming Sunday, I'm going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 about the comfort that we have in these words. These words are not anesthetic. They don't numb our pain. These words don't wipe away our tears, but they offer hope. Paul's words didn't bring anyone back from the dead, but they remind us that one day soon Jesus' words are going to do that very thing. He said, comfort one another. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. He wrote, Jesus is coming back. And so today we are comforted. But we're only human, aren't we? We can't help ourselves, can we? When? When will Jesus come back? When will this resurrection take place? Grieving parents are are still weeping themselves to sleep and asking themselves and God, when will we see our precious baby again? There are those who are going through days in a fog asking God, when will I see my spouse again or my father or my grandmother or my brother? And when you add to that our particular theological slant, we just cannot help ourselves For when will the mark of the beast be foisted upon this unsuspecting world? It has been written that Jesus would have returned ere this. We've read those words. And man, doesn't that turn a Klieg light on to the times in which we live? We are here in the United States. And as you read in the book of Revelation, you come to an inescapable conclusion that this nation will have a very important role to play in earth's last days. We witness the moral decay. We see the violence in the streets and we see policemen being shot and we see unarmed black men being shot and shot and shot and five people are stabbed in a home in Tulsa and five service personnel die. In Chattanooga, Tennessee, my hometown of all places, and we thought television was a plague but then came the internet and it flooded our homes and it flooded our suit jacket pockets with the kind of evil that we had never even imagined. And so we say, we have to be close. Remember when the kids were little? You remember that? Are we nearly there yet? When we were still childless. I remember getting into the car with friends of ours, and before we had pulled out of the driveway, their two-year-old son was saying, are we nearly there yet? And I thought to myself, what in the world is wrong with that child? until we had kids of our own and we were strapping them into the car seat and they were saying, are we nearly there yet? And so we say to ourselves, we are nearly there, except that those who live by statistics are bound to die by statistics. The truth is, as we look at some of our favored statistics, we see them tell an almost bipolar story. The truth is that even though certain diseases are on the rise, certain others are on the decline. Before the year 2000, patients with chronic myelogenous leukemia were told they had a very bleak outlook and that they would certainly, within three to six years, die. Before the year 2000, we are going back just a handful of years. Today, those same patients are told they have a pretty straightforward sort of a condition, that they possess an indolent sort of a cancer, and that if they will take their medication they will almost certainly live out a normal lifespan. There are only a few cases of CML, just a few thousand cases of chronic myelogenous leukemia reported in the United States every year, but it will not be long, and there will be 250,000 people living with CML, once a pretty ugly form of leukemia, in our very midst. So in a certain sense, the amount of cancer sufferers will go up, but they're not cancer sufferers, they're cancer carriers, they're cancer what 
tolerate us. And so it's good news. In fact, it's, it's not good news. It's remarkable news. Phenomenal news. Not long ago, that would have been unthinkable. You can make statistics say just about whatever you want, but the facts are that the rates of violent crime are down sharply, dramatically, by almost 50% in some categories since only 1990, 1991, 1992. That's not to say things are good. They're not. They're a disaster. But if you look at crime statistics, you would see that they're trending in the right way for society. Maybe the wrong way for some of us evangelists, but the right way for society. Things are looking better than they were when I started preaching the three angels' messages. Now, that's not to make naysayers out of us. That's not my point at all. The Bible says it's a wicked servant who says, My Lord, delay this coming. It might be that Paul had no need to write of the times and the seasons. But he goes on to write in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 these words, For yourselves, verse 2, know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, sudden destruction cometh upon them. He's coming back. Oh, yes, he is. But some of those same statistics that at times have given impetus to the preaching of our message have at the same time let just a little bit of the air out of the balloon. Every week we lay to rest another mighty worker in the cause of God. Every week we lay to rest another saint of God like the 92-year-old woman we'll be farewelling this coming weekend. Every week, another mother in Israel, another father of young children, we lay her, we lay him to rest. Every year, we come to conventions just like this one, telling us that maybe this will be the last. Maybe we shall not congregate here 12 months from now. And truly, it might be. Sooner or later, it might be. In fact, it will be. Sooner or later, it will be. And I'm on the side of sooner, not later. But we come back year after year, and Jesus still hasn't returned. Is that a problem? No, it is not. It's a blessing. Because the longer he waits, the better the chances are that your children will come back to the church. The longer he waits, the better the chances that your unbelieving spouse will come to faith in Christ. The longer he waits, statistically speaking, the more time we have to reach a world that we, without God's Spirit, cannot possibly reach. At times, it seems we are like Alice in the sequel to Alice in Wonderland, the story of the Red Queen constantly running but remaining in exactly the same place. But still, we labor on. And why do we labor? You know the hymn, work, for the night is coming. Work through the morning hours. Work while the dew is sparkling. Work mid-springing flowers. They don't write them like this anymore. Work when the day grows brighter. Work in the glowing sun. Work for the night is coming when man's work is done. Annie Walker wrote that in 1854. She was 18 years old. Was she wrong? No. She was absolutely right. The Lord is soon to return. Jesus is coming back soon. But how soon? Let me answer that for you. It hardly matters. For if you were to die tonight, Jesus is coming back then, as far as you are aware. If you live another 60 years and Jesus has not returned, trust me, you will not 
be thinking Jesus tarried long. Every centenarian I am privileged to spend any time with at all, I ask them one question. Did it take long for you to get to 100? And in every single case, they have said, no, the years flew by. I don't know where the time disappeared. In fact, friends of mine asked a 100-year-old lady uh, recently, what's the best thing about turning 100? And she paused for a moment, and she reflected, and then she said, I know what it is. No peer pressure, which I thought was kind of cute. I haven't had a long day since I was a teenager. Time is passing by. Annie Walker's inspiration for that poem that became a hymn, a hymn popularized by Ira Sankey, was John 9 and verse 4. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. Jesus said, the night cometh when no man can work. Friend, our motivation for working for Christ isn't simply that Jesus is coming back soon. Now, if that motivates you, and it should, then we praise the Lord for that. Jesus, in fact, was the one who urged us to keep an eye on the, t uh, uh, an eye on the signs of the times. He said, you will see these things, and you will know that my coming is near, even at the doors. Jesus said, we can know. He said, the night cometh, but how near, how near, we must work the works of him that sent us. Not because the night comes, but because it is still day. Yes, we know Jesus' return is near. Maybe the better hymn to sing is the one that says, coming again, coming again. Maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening, maybe soon. When? Don't know when. But that doesn't matter a bit. Now, let's zoom in on this just a little bit. Turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19. It's the parable of the ten pounds. It's one of those very helpful parables where the Bible writer tells us why Jesus shared the parable in the very first place. It's like that one in the previous chapter which says, and he spoke a parable to them to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. So we know exactly what that parable is about. But now we read this in Luke 19 and verse 11. Luke 19 verse 11. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And now verse 13 says, And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said to them, What? Occupy when? Occupy till I come. He didn't tell him how long it would be. He just said, Occupy. Now, this wasn't Occupy Wall Street, which came and fizzed and then fizzled and it's gone. This is something that God intended to be lasting, something that should not pass from the church's stage. Occupy till I come. Pragmatiwamai. Keep yourself busy. The King James says occupy. The New King James says do business till I come. The NASB says basically the same thing. The RSB, RSV says trade with these until I come. God clearly paints a picture here of his people being instructed to keep busy, to keep working, 
to keep trading, to keep on doing business. Because whether Jesus comes back today, tomorrow, or the next day, ours is to lift him up every day. Do business till I come. And as those pounds represent talents or capabilities or capacity that we have, Jesus is saying, for as long as you can, for as long as you have, as long as I have not yet returned to this earth, it's up to you to be about my Father's business. We have breath, so we work for the Lord. We labor in the vineyard. We have five pounds, we invest them in His behalf. We have one pound, we do the same thing. For how long? Jesus answered it. He said, occupy, keep about my Father's business. Keep busy, labor until I come. I've been sharing lately a passage uh, in places where I've gone from the book of Nehemiah. I'd love you to turn there with me, Nehemiah chapter 3. It simply illustrates uh, a point, but it does so graphically. It does so remarkably, I think. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 3. Now, you know the background of Nehemiah. Nehemiah had gone to the king. He said, I've got to go back home. Jerusalem is languishing. Society is in a mess. Somebody's got to go. He stuck his neck out. He stuck his neck out. The king could have said, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's enemy territory. At the end of the day, you're the enemy because you're a slave. And you wanting to go back there and get things fired up again? You may have insurrection on your mind. But Nehemiah answered the call of God. He did not stop to ask himself whether this would bring trouble, whether this would bring difficulty, whether this would upend his life. He knew it would, but he had to go. God placed a calling on Nehemiah's heart, and he went. Think again about Nehemiah. Somebody had to go back there to Jerusalem and get the walls built. Somebody had to go back there to Jerusalem and reestablish society. Well, man, that would be an architect or an engineer, at least a builder, a politician, a diplomat, somebody with great leadership experience. But Nehemiah had merely been a butler. He was the hired domestic help. That's all he was. God said, somebody's got to go back there. Nehemiah might have said, I'll find the person. I'll go to ASI, and I'll find a professional skilled at sharing his or her faith, someone who has made a success in business, somebody who's practiced at all of this. I'll find somebody, Lord, but that wasn't Nehemiah. God placed his hand on Nehemiah. Nehemiah got up, and he went. And when he got to Jerusalem, he marshaled the forces, and he got the people together. And notice what he did. He put them to work, and I'm going to read from Nehemiah 3 and verse 1. Listen, there's a, a theme, a thread. It's like gold. You can't miss it. It runs through these verses. Nehemiah 3 verse 1. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren the priests. And they builded the sheep gate. They sanctified it. And set up the doors of it. Even to the tower of Mia they sanctified it. Unto the tower of Hananiel. That's verse 3. I'm sorry. No it's not. It's verse 1. It's chapter 3. Forget about all of that. Just follow along. And notice how verse 2 starts. And next unto him builded the men of Jericho. And next to them builded Zachar, the son of Imri. But the fish gate did the sons of Hassanah build, who also laid, laid the beams thereof, and set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. And next unto them repaired Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Koz. And you're seeing it, aren't you? And next unto them repaired Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, the, the son of Meshezabeel. And next unto them repaired Zadok, the son of Baanah. And next unto them the Tekoites repaired. You get the picture, right? 
Here's somebody building here. But he is not alone because next to him, it doesn't even say way on down the other end of the line, next to him, as though that brother could reach out and touch his fellow. And next to them, and next to them, and next to them. There are 32 verses in Nehemiah chapter 3, and it says next to them or and after them at least 29 times in that one chapter. God's trying to get a message through to us. Now, he does so in another, in another way through, through contrast. I didn't finish the end of verse 5, but you want to look at it. It says that the, the Tekoites built. And then it says in verse 5, but, but their nobles put not their necks to the work of the Lord. That's astonishing. This was so important that everybody pitched in. It was so vital that folks weren't working alone. It was so dramatically, profoundly germane to the success of the whole experience. God made it clear, this one, then this one, then this one, and next to them, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. There's something I've got to point out, God says. Not everybody built. There was this one group. They should have, but they didn't. There was this one group. They were AWOL. There was this one group, could have been, should have been, but where were they? They were not working for God. Think about that. Think of how profoundly important this must have been, that the Bible writer didn't just talk about those who worked, but had to mention, even by name, as it were, the ones who refused. It's like in Judges chapter 5, curse ye Meros, curse ye the inhabitants thereof, because ye came not up to the work of the Lord, to the work of the Lord against the mighty. Ladies and gentlemen, God wants us to be working, working. Five talents, use them. One, use that. If you can save a city, save that city. If you can reach out to one person, reach out to that one. If you can go to one of these wonderful places of the world and baptize a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand, then you must. But if you go to some place where it comes harder, then you must. And think about how, how, wonderful, how wonderful it is that those have gone before us who went to those harder places. I had some former missionaries in a church. In fact, uh, children of missionaries to India. And these were elderly folks, so they were raised in India 80 plus, 80 or so years ago. I said, what was it like in India back then? What was it like soul winning in India back then? Oh, he shook his head, my dear friend. He shook his head. Oh, it was tough. If you got one, you celebrated. If one came to faith in Christ, there was rejoicing. One. And you know that in recent years, our challenge in India has been to build churches fast enough. Thank God for those who came before. Can you imagine those missionaries coming home on furlough, hanging their heads? Oh, I know we got some other missionaries over here who are in some place without winning hundreds and thousands and multiplied thousands. We can't tell you that. But we did win one. And they went back and they won another. And they established a clinic and they started a school and progress came slowly. But they worked day after day. They were determined by God's grace. They would occupy till Jesus returned. They would occupy. God's trying to tell us something. Next to him, next to them, after them, almost 30 times in that one chapter, 
God wants to get it through to us. That if this work is going to get done at all, there will have to be an army of people who rise up. Not one here, not one there, not one somewhere else. But all of God's people doing what they can, where they are, what they can, how they are, as they are. If ever there was a time for the church to be actively engaged in ministry, the church, I'm speaking as a whole, now's the time. Some of us are going to have to go back home and wake the dead. We've almost perfected the art of distracting ourselves with important things. If we can learn to do the most important thing, we'll really be getting somewhere. Jesus is coming back soon. The Lord himself says, occupy till I come. Be about your father's business. When does Jesus return? One year from now. So we occupy for a year. Five years from now. That gives us five years. Ten, twenty, somehow it doesn't matter a bit. Occupy, God says, for as long as you have breath, for as long as you have life, for as long as it takes. Occupy. That's what we've been called to do, is occupy till he comes. In 1999, I was working on an evangelistic series, and I spoke with a friend, an evangelist. He told me he wanted to show me a video clip It was from the movie Schindler's List, Academy Award-winning movie, which had been released six years earlier, uh, directed by Steven Spielberg. I'd never seen this movie or any part of it, but my friend said that he showed this certain clip from Schindler's List to congregations he was going to work with, hold meetings with. Before the meeting began, he would show this little clip on the screen in the church. He said, you have to see this. It's near the very end of the movie. The movie's hero, Oscar Schindler, the Czech industrialist, is that fair? Factory owner, was leaving his factory in what was then Brinlitz and what is now something Czech that I couldn't hope to pronounce, not correctly. 40 miles north of Brno, if you're familiar with Czech Republic, 40 miles north of Brno and about 115 miles east of Prague, not far from the Polish border. Schindler is surrounded by those he has saved, people who are living and not dead because of his intervention. And they're honoring him, thanking him. And yet he says, I could have got more out. I could have got more if I'd just, Ben Kingsley's character says, Oscar, there are 1,200 people who are alive because of you. Look at them. Schindler says, if I'd made more money, I threw away so much money, you have no idea. The man says, there will be generations because of what you did. I didn't do enough. You did so much. He looks at his car his beautiful car. Now remember, there are hundreds of survivors standing around in this scene. Hundreds. And think about what it means to be a survivor. Not dead. Alive. Certainly otherwise dead. But alive. And yet he says, this car. Gert would have bought this car. Why did I keep this car? Ten people right there. 
10 more I could have got. He reaches down to the pin that's on his lapel. This pin, he says, two people. This is gold. Two more people. He would have given me two for it, at least one. He would have given me one, one more, one more person. A person for this. One more. I could have gotten one more person. I didn't. And as I stood there watching on my friend's laptop, I didn't even think about it. I didn't plan for this. I didn't know it was happening to me. But tears cascaded down my face. When I reflected on this later, I couldn't remember that ever having happened to me before in remotely similar circumstances. One more. I could have got one more. Jesus has called us to occupy till he comes. Yeah, we have one eye on the approaching night. But let's be honest, it's the day that matters more. The day will come to an end. Night is going to come. Jesus is going to come back. Certainly that's the blessed hope. You know I'm not diminishing that. But it's daytime. When will Jesus return? I don't know. I do care, but I don't know. But every day he waits, that's time for us to get one more. Not one more dollar, one more soul. Certainly another dollar, for we must live. And certainly another dollar, so we can invest more in another soul. But every day we have, it's another opportunity. And every day we have, it's an opportunity for you and me to make sure that the one more that Jesus gets is us. For it might be that we are so busy doing God's work that we are slowly, perhaps imperceptibly, drifting away from God. Don't think it cannot happen to you. It can. It's happened to better men and women than us. They're on the front lines. They're doing great things. And maybe it's because people told them again and again how great they were. Who knows? They're winning souls. They're up to here in ministry. They're bringing exciting reports. And the next thing you know, there's been a moral fall. The next thing you know, there's been a, a financial scandal. The next thing you know, this brother or this sister is no longer in ministry. No longer, no, no longer what? No longer in the church. How did that happen? He or she will come back surely. Gone. Never saw them again. Gone. One more. Could have got one more. That's important. But friend, one of those one mores has to be you and it has to be me. Occupy till I come. Yes, working for the Lord till Jesus comes. But come on now, staying close to the Lord till Jesus comes. Connected to the Lord till Jesus comes. You can save the world, but if you're not saved, that's a tragedy of immense proportions. We've got one eye on the approaching night, two eyes on the day in which we live. And hearts lifted up to Jesus saying, Lord Jesus, save me. Fill my emptiness. Supply my lack. Be the answer to my need. Never let me go cold or go off or go out. Never let it be, Lord. Never. God has called us to occupy till he comes. If you'll be involved in ministry, you'll discover that ministry, like nothing else, has the capacity to keep you close to Jesus and keep you on your knees.
Occupy. You know, I met a friend recently. I was back in this wonderful town where I had pastored a church. I mentioned that earlier. And I was staying at a dear friend's home. And I received a visit. A visit from a dear old friend, former church member. No, I mean, he's still a church member, but I, I was the former pastor, one of the pastors once at that church. And as he got out of his car and walked towards me, the first thing I noticed was that he was leaning on a walking stick. I'd never known him to walk with a walking stick before. And leaning on this walking stick, he had, he had, had sore feet, plantar fasciitis. That'll get your attention. Leaning on this walking stick, he walked across the driveway towards me. It was wonderful to see him. We embraced warmly. How are you doing? Great, great. Pastor, how are you? Oh, never better. What in the world is that? What's that in your hand? Tell me about that, that, that walking stick. This thing was a work of art. He'd been overseas on a mission trip once in Zambia. And he'd seen a walking stick that was so beautiful, he just had to have it. Just had to have it. Now, now the stick part itself was just a plain piece of wood. But, but around it somehow, around it, uh, uh, twisted, winding around it from the bottom to the top, was, uh, was, was a piece of wood like this with elephants carved into the outside of that piece of wood. I'd never seen anything like it. And he said, I'd never seen anything like it either. And I didn't need a walking stick at that time, but I bought it anyway because it was just so beautiful. Bought it anyway. He said, now, Pastor, let me tell you a story. He said, recently, I went to the Lord in prayer, and I prayed and, uh, over days and weeks. And it was then that tears, tears, real ones, started welling up in his eyes. Pastor, he said, I realized that I didn't have a ministry. Now, he had just got through delivering Meals on Wheels, which I thought was pretty good. And I said, now, come on, Larry, you're delivering Meals on Wheels. That's a ministry. No, 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 pastor, not that. I'm just a driver. I don't even get out the car. I just drive folks around. I don't mean that. I mean, I mean a ministry, a soul-winning ministry where I share Jesus and I point people to the Bible and I encourage people to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. Pastor, he said, I realized I didn't have a ministry and it was breaking my heart. I said, Larry, you're 92 years old. 92. I said with a little mischief in my eye, haven't you earned the right to sit at home and put your feet up while the younger generation carries the work forward? Oh, pastor, he said, scandalized. That can never be. 92 years old. He's weeping. He doesn't have a ministry. Weeping. Can you believe that? So I went to the Lord and I prayed, Lord, what can I do? What can I do? Then I read the story of Moses. And Moses has that stick, you know, and God says to Moses, what's that in your hand? He said, that was it right there. I felt God saying to me, what's that in your hand? And I looked at the walking stick. I said, that's it. Everywhere I go, perfect strangers say to me, what is that beautiful thing in your hand? I realized. He went home, he took a photograph of the walking stick. And he designed a trifold tract or brochure or handout. Now, I know he spends a little time on the computer. I don't know who did the design, whether it was him or his friend or family. I don't know. But he had it made up. So now, there's a tract. 
front page, there's a picture of the walking stick. And above it, it says, what is that in your hand? You open it up, and on the left-hand side, it's the story of Moses. When you get to the center panel, it neatly segues into the story of salvation. And then when you get to the right-hand side, as my memory serves me, it segues into a beautiful appeal to the heart. And then you turn it over and it says, if you'd like to know more, and it lists a bunch of places and ministries and websites and phone numbers, get in touch with these people and you can get more resources. He's 92 years old. And he's staggering through Walmart on his walking stick and somebody says, well, that's a beautiful thing you got. And he says, well, and they said, well, what is that? I thought you'd never ask. Reaches into his pocket, produces a track. Here, read this. I can wait while you read it. They get through the track. He says, do you have any questions? Oh, come on now. You ought to be saying, praise the Lord. 92 years old. 92 years old. He's not even buying green bananas anymore. 92. Occupying. Till Jesus comes. While there is breath, he will occupy. Will he be living when Jesus comes back? Come on now, you're offering pretty short odds on that. Or long odds. I don't know, my gambling days are long behind me, but you're offering not a big chance. You, you, you think, well, 92, it could be, could be. Not as much chance as if he was 12 or 13 or 22 or 23. But it doesn't matter to Larry. Jesus is coming back soon. And whenever Jesus comes back, whenever it is, we are not losing too much sleep. For we will occupy until that day, whenever that day is. My brother was baptized 40 years ago. He thought he was the last one on the door. He now has seven grandchildren. One of them's at university. Realistically, realistically, he's old enough to be a great-grandfather. Jesus didn't return in 1975. Really? Don't call me a heretic. But I don't think he's coming back in 2015 either. Could be next year. Of course it could. We don't know. We don't have to know. We just know that it's near. And whenever Jesus returns, we will occupy till he comes. Because in Christ... In Christ, our hope is still fervent. Our outlook is still positive. In Christ, though Jesus has not yet returned, our faith is still steadfast. Our purpose is still sharp. Our mission is still clear. Our vision is still before us. Our desire is still intense. Our plan is still to follow His plan. Our resolve is still strong. Our dreams are still alive. Our aspiration is still a finished work. Our objective is still souls won. Our determination has not slackened. Our direction is still towards the kingdom. Our goal is to win one more. Our intent is to preach the gospel because in spite of the times... Because in spite of the distractions, in spite of opposition, in spite of lukewarmness, in spite of small thinking, in spite of past failures, in spite of our own weakness, in spite of our own lack, our lack of resources, our lack of consistency, our lack of a frequent surrender, our too often lack of obedience, our lack of imagination, our lack of success, our lack of righteousness, in spite of our repeated mistakes, in spite of it all, 
Our hope is still in Christ Jesus our Lord. By His grace, we will occupy till He comes. For God is still on heaven's throne. And Jesus is coming back soon. What do you say today? Come on now, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know not the hour of the Master's appearing. We know not the hour, but we know He will come. God, give us grace to watch and be ready, for He will come. Dear Lord, you must give us grace today, for we are weak. We are erring. We are, we are prone to leave our battle station. We are prone to take our eyes off Christ. And so we say to you this morning, we need you. You have called us to do a work that is bigger than we are. We need you. We need to hang in this thing for the long haul in spite of Satan's best attempts to discourage us. You've called us to hang in there and to occupy till he comes. Keep us, Lord. We can't do this without you. The church can never get this done. Our best schemes can never get this done. But with Jesus, it can only be done. There can be no failure for soon we will look up and we will say, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for Him and He will save us. And not just us, but others besides who are there because of you, working through us to reach one more. Keep us, Lord. Own us. Use us. Bless us. Might we occupy till you come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.